From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationship with it. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. Well, two weeks ago, Category 4 Hurricane Ian cut a path of destruction across portions of Florida that was unprecedented in its size and magnitude. Today, we'll spend the entire show discussing the extent of environmental damage that the southwest, central, and northeastern parts of Florida experienced. First, we'll listen to an interview where Chris speaks with Tony Westland, the supervisory refuge manager at the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge located in Sanibel Island, Florida. She'll describe how Hurricane Ian impacted the land, plants and animals at the refuge, and how just two weeks later, the refuge is already showing signs of recovery. Then in the second part of the show, We'll talk with Julie Raithmel, Executive Director of Audubon, Florida. She'll share with us the impacts which Hurricane Ian had to birds and habitat across all those parts of Florida that fell within Ian's path. Today we're going to spend the, the entire show talking about Hurricane Ian, but most, most uh, noticeably the environmental impacts associated with Hurricane Ian upon those parts of Florida that were uh, affected by it most notably the southwest part, but also the central and northeast part of the state got hammered by winds and rain and, and flooding and uh, coastal surge, etc. So our first interview is with Tony Westland. She is the supervisory refuge manager with J.N. Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. You're not familiar. Um, it's this uh, wildlife refuge located on Sanibel Island. Now, have you ever been there? I have, you many have. years ago. Oh, yes. Right. Me too. And it was beautiful. Gorgeous. Um, and it, it got right, it was right in the path of, of the herd, as all of Sanibel Island was. So we're going to, uh, this is, as Nell mentioned, this is a pre-recorded interview I did yesterday with Tony Westland, who, uh, uh, will help describe what happened to the island, uh, what happened to, to the refuge, and how already, within two weeks or so, there's some sense of resiliency and recovery there. Let's, uh, let's listen. Tony Westland, thank you for joining me this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start here. Give us a little background for those of us who, who live out here in Park City, Utah, and may not have uh, visited uh, Southwest Florida. Give us a little background on JN Ding Darling, the refuge, the kind of the, the, the history of it, the size of it, the location, et cetera. Well, great. Yeah, uh, we only have, what, 20 minutes? I think I could talk about this for a lifetime. Um, I'm celebrating my 20th year at the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, and what a way to celebrate it. Um, but, you know, I'm so glad you could have me on and yeah i'm always surprised we meet people from all over the world but it's great that you're taking us all the way out to utah you know the the ding darling refuge the jn ding darling national wildlife refuge is a part of a whole system of lands we are the u.s fish and wildlife service with over 568 national wildlife refuges across the country so we have them out in utah you know we have wildlife refuges within 50 miles of every major city we are in your backyard. We are urban. We would love people to connect. If they can't make it all the way out to Sanibel, we are in their backyards. So thank you so much for all of that. 
As for Ding Darling, um, we're a barrier island off of Fort Myers, Florida. Sanibel Island is an island like no other in Captiva, and it will be after all of this. But the refuge has been around since 1945. So we just celebrated our 75th year, and we've got an awesome free visitor and education center, a, a four-mile wildlife drive. You know, this is just a setback, um, but it is the best value on Sanibel. We talk about that. People come from all over the world to see our awesome beaches. They get sunburned. They need something else to do. They stumble upon our wildlife refuge, and we engage them with some amazing wildlife that they see just flying in, slithering in. You know, once you see the wildlife in Southwest Florida, um, you keep coming back. So, yeah, we're a system of lands in which we manage specifically for wildlife and wildlife first. But because of that, we're able to engage a lot of people and help them become stewards of the environment. You know, um, if it's their careers or voting or just to enjoy the environment, wildlife refuges are great places to enjoy wildlife with lots of different recreation. And who is JN Ding Darling? Yeah, so a lot of people will say, is a ding a bird? You know, because we're known for over 250 different species of birds. But Ding Darling was not a bird, he was a man. Jay Norwood, Ding Darling, was actually a cartoonist. Um, was actually born in Norwood, Michigan, that's his middle name. Spent most of his life in Des Moines, Iowa. But a lot of his conservation editorial cartoons, he was on the front page of over 150 newspapers across you know, the nation. And we, we tell, especially young kids, he lived at a time where there was no TV hardly even radio. And so people got their news from the newspaper. So he would make a drawing and it was about politics or the environment, about something that was going on. But a lot of these cartoons we could still put in our newspapers today. Deforestation, water quality, you know, how we're treating this planet, how we can do better with treating this planet. But Ding Darling had a special heart in Southwest Florida. He actually has a house off of Captiva. It still stands. It made it through Charlie. Hmm. Um, I have an Irma, and now I have yet to hear how it's standing in this hurricane. We, um, we're slowly expanding as the cleanup continues all over Sanibel and Captiva. I wouldn't be surprised if his house is still standing. Hmm. Um, a dock leads out to it, but he would come down here um, and spend time drawing and finding peace in these islands. And so that's, he's, he lobbied to get the land set aside. Um, he ended up being our first boss. He was the head of the biological survey, which became the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He drew the first duck stamp. He was a hunter and a fisherman. He had so many great things that he, that he did in his career. But we are his namesake, and we continue art and conservation at Ding Darling. And so you alluded to the, the general mission and objectives of of the refuge is to provide obviously habitat to all types of species of yes. animal birds fish reptiles etc that's what people will will see and encounter when they when they visit the refuge um so so that's the setting now let's go back two weeks literally two weeks ago um you know, the cone of probability as the storm initially approached, it was four or five days out, it looked like it was going to center around the Tampa Bay area. And then, of course, with 
each update, it seemed to be the, the center of the cone seemed to be dropping farther south and south until within a day or two, within 48 hours of landfall, the, the cone centered over Fort Myers. So knowing that, what kind of preparations first did you, were you able to, to do in anticipation right. of this event? I had alluded to that I've been through Hurricane Charlie. That was an unprecedented storm that we had here. We were not prepared for Charlie. And I'll be the first to say a hurricane plan for our refuge came out from Charlie. We luckily had the support of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They sent hundreds of workers and sawyers and equipment to help us dig out of Charlie. That happens every single time there's a natural disaster at one of our national wildlife refuges or somewhere else in the country. There are people to come help us, and that's what we're experiencing right now. So from Charlie came a plan. We have a plan. As soon as we are within the cone, we start 72 hours out. Mm -hmm. There is exactly what we need to do. We're moving equipment out of, off of the island. You know, the tallest part, and it's because we built it, is on our property of nine feet. You can only put so much equipment up on this giant hill we created. We did that since Charlie. In the meantime, we have partnerships with the school district who's been hit super hard right now. My own children are here, not in school. But we have a partnership to move equipment off island. Because of those agreements, we can act accordingly. We can help each other. Luckily, we saved equipment. Our mobile classroom, this new WOW 36-foot trailer created during COVID, we could move that half a million dollar project off. So as soon as the school kids get back in, we're going to start field trips. So what we learned from Charlie is we need a plan. We start implementing it. And we do it every single time. So there's times storms come and people are like, oh, I can't believe you guys are already preparing and it's not going to hit us. We prepare. Okay. And this was the prime example. You said it. We thought it was going to hit Tampa. We, You don't want it to hit anywhere, right? right. No, We know someone's going to get hit. And we've got refuges all along the coastlines and all along this beautiful country. We have to be ready for it. Even come Monday, we were moving vehicles off. We closed on Monday, so our our own employees can get home and start preparing their own place, their own homes, and right. get them ready for the storm. Um, let me let me know, jump in just just so, just so that our listeners understand. Charlie yeah. was a, a hurricane cat four, I believe, and yes. it was at 04, 05. It struck. It was two, it was it was Friday the thirteenth. 2004. Okay, so it was a strong, strong storm, but not to jump too far forward, but the 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 footprint of Charlie was much smaller than the footprint of of Ian, and right. but still a category four. Ian almost, you know, for all intents and purposes, a category five in in some. Uh, right. in some areas. So you had a hurricane plan in place, but that was for people. What does, what does the environment do? What do ecosystems, the birds and, and reptiles, how do they, is it possible for them to kind of get a sense of what's ha uh, uh, foreboding and do they make preparations? So 
we know for a fact during Charlie, and this was accidental and ended up being in a mind blowing study. We were working with, um, gosh, I don't want to get the wrong partnership. It's been a while since I've said this. We tagged sharks mm. and we were doing a partnership of what sharks are utilizing the refuge. And from that, Charlie happened. And there is data that shows sharks actually left the refuge waters eight hours prior to Charlie hitting us. Charlie comes through it with a faster moving storm. Hmm. And then the sharks returned after. Um, that's why they say women, you know, have babies and go into labor, the barometric pressure. So in this case, we have factual data with partners um, from Tag Shark saying they felt the drop in the barometric pressure and they left the area. Hmm. A lot of people think, and we get lots of questions, you know, doing social media and trying to keep, people are caring and we, we love that. And we're trying to clean up and we're trying to get to social media. Um, it's not like we go out there and there's just dead animals laying everywhere. So this is a good thing, right? right. Um, so, but we do have biologists that will come on and they already are assessing the lands, the vegetation, the wildlife. Um, we're still, you know, we don't want to say anything until we get some good, we're, we're a science-based organization. So we aren't going to give out any information until we have some good factual information. Right. What does concern me is the flooding. This was different from Charlie with the flooding. So when you start talking about gopher tortoises, um, you know, they're such a cool keystone species that helps a lot of animals, but they've got this long burrow. It dips down, but it does go up at the end for them to be safe during flood times. They escape during, you know, fire or prescribed fire. Um, that's our concern where the flooding was here for so long in such you know, such deep water, right. something we've never seen. Um, so we're still assessing the wildlife. What's great about the vegetation, I've been out there. I've been there on, on bicycle because we don't have a lot of running vehicles. Right. Everything is just stripped, but the mangroves seem to have done their job, which is act as a barrier to these islands. We have native vegetation. These these trees, you know, people wonder why we take down Australian pines. Well, it's because the root systems are so shallow and they're bigger than buildings when an Australian pine comes down right. and it rips up all the utilities. Native, um, you know, vegetation can handle the high winds. Now, when you start talking about nearly a category five, a cat five storm, it just looks very, everything is stripped of their leaves. Right. But that's not to say things won't get back. Um, after Hurricane Charlie, we did have patches of mangroves that did not come back. And that was because there wasn't enough flushing of the water back and forth. Some systems were kind of choked into their own area because of debris. And without that flushing, that tidal flushing with the mangroves, we saw dead spots of mangroves. As soon as we opened up and put more culverts in and help that flushing happen, mangroves come back. Okay. So, um, yeah. So yeah. So let me let me kind of kind of roll along with that. With any storm of this size and magnitude, like you say, you're going to have 
There's going to be physical damage. There's going to be chemical damage in this sense, probably like saltwater intrusion, saltwater on uh, otherwise upland areas or in, in intruding into biological systems that are not accustomed to being um, inundated by saltwater for long periods of time. So there's a chemical impacts. And then, of course, the biological impacts that you suggest, that you're talking about. So are you – were there actual – from what you can see, physical impacts to the refuge? I mean, is, is maybe Sanibel writ large. Has that physically or might it be physically changing? You know, new cuts or new, a new shape to the shoreline? Start there with the, like physical impacts. Right. I mean, we saw that with Hurricane Charlie. We called it Charlie's Ass, where mm. there was an actual island cut in half um, north of us. Obviously, the causeway in three sections, but that being man-made has been, you know, we have seen, wow, we, you can build it, but nature can tear it down. Right. It's just amazing what, um, but as for assessing our refuge lands, I mean, that's the importance of keeping natural things and making sure we don't have seawalls and man-made structures everywhere. They really did act as a buffer. We're still looking at all of that. We. This is a storm of as you know, unprecedented when it comes to things being washed away, cars being left, um, even our own equipment, you know, trying to make sure things are capped off. There's over 500 electrical trucks out there already. I cannot right. believe the progress we are seeing on Sanibel. Hmm. Um, just looking at the two, the size of the storm, but not being able to access it and get right onto the island but we were over in boats. People are always amazed. What do you mean you've been out there already? How many times? No, there's an area where us emergency personnel only go out of the closest right. point where you get there quickly by boat. But now today, um, they are able to put barges out there and contractors are able to come. This is happening very quickly um, where things are, are going moving quickly. The, right. the, the fixing of the causeway. We, voted back the other day and it was the first time I saw a car up on the A-span. Well, they're big trucks fixing what, you know, once you go over the A-span where we're missing the causeway. So it is amazing. It's, I, I've said this too, and I really truly feel it's almost looking at a bunch of bees working in a beehive. Like yeah. everybody has their own role and we'll meet people from Tennessee with rescue dogs going into homes, all the rescue and eva evacuation. Many of those people I love and have known for 20 years that have been rescued off the island. And then um, just you meet people from all over the world that are here helping, not even to mention it's constant over my house right now, you know, military. Um, little worker bees all kind of making it happen and it's happening quickly okay and then with respect to the ecosystem at the refuge you know they had to deal with it they dealt with it what does recovery look like for ecosystems you kind of alluded to the trees and plants are, are stripped of leaves but you say that they're not dead and perhaps you know a week or two or three weeks, you'll start to see uh, buds reappear, right? That's recovery. What about the ecosystems with respect to birds, their nesting areas, um, and, and reptiles, et cetera? What does their recovery look like in terms of 
magnitudes and 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 time periods. Right. I can only speak from Charlie, and I don't want to misspeak. Um, as you know, not you know, my background isn't biology. My background is natural resource management with environmental education. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that is being evaluated when it comes to how fast things come back. But just from being through many tropical storms and hurricanes, we uh, work with the weather center. There were spots after Charlie, and we haven't heard any of this yet, where you just saw tunnels. There was tornadoes that whip off of hurricanes too. Mm -hmm. And just right off of our trail system where you can see, wow, something definitely came through here. We work with the National Weather Center to let us know where they've seen that stuff happen. But even those, and that was a long time ago in 2004, but those have all recovered. I remember the season after we had nesting birds again, you know, the mangroves bounce back, the gumbo limbos, the sea grapes, Obviously, in 140-some mile-an-hour winds, you're going to have, we have a lot of debris to pick up to chip. We chip it up, throw it right back into the estuary, you know, um, and it really helps with the detritus. Um, so that's just, I guess we're going to have to wait to see. We're hoping right. everything rebounds as well as it has in, in prior storms. Well, I mean, you know, even in events like tragic events like this, there's opportunities, like you say, to learn and study. You know, I'm sure scientists, biologists will be down there tracking the recovery, recovery rates, what recovery ultimately looks like and how, how a storm of that nature um, uh, ultimately impacts physically, chemically and biologically systems like right. this. Last, last few minutes. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, how did you manage the storm? Where where were you? I'm I'm uh, obviously I hope you packed up and boarded up and left the island or uh, got off Sanibel. Um, right. Tell us your story real quick. Yeah, so I actually live off island. I am still in Zone A, evacuation A, um, which is the highest yeah. level of evacuation. Correct. So the barrier islands, Fort Myers Beach, Pine Island, Sanibel, they're all A. It was mandatory evacuation. And so is where I am right now um, in my home. So I, the end of my street is a state park, a sterile um, preserve state park. Mm -hmm. And so what a great buffer to have at the end of your road, right? It's a beautiful place to hike. Well, when they talked about storm surge, you know, this is of magnitude we have never seen. You know, looking back, right? Hindsight 2020, you're like, storm surge, storm surge. I had nine feet of water. It just came an inch from inside of our homes. Um, I have pictures where it water, a river of water went down my street, came all the way up to my doorstep. Again, my house is built up. My swimming pool became the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. We lost all three vehicles. My vehicle, um, my friend was just, she escaped here. She'd mm -hmm. never been through a hurricane. Her house did not flood just a mile inland from here, but she parked her car here. We had pictures of all of our vehicles underwater. So, um, you know, when, but then you go to Sanibel Island and you see the devastation of water getting into homes, people getting into their attics. That's what's, you know, everybody's story is different and loss is loss. And luckily it was just cars, three cars at my house, my garage contents, 
but I can just tell you, I have never seen, it's just like you see it on TV. Right. It was the scariest thing I have been through. And I, um, we had a, we had a plan to go up. I'm in a one story house, but we were with high ceilings. We were ready and had a plan to get up into the attic. You bring your chainsaw with you, just like you hear those things. You right. have to be ready to cut a hole. You know, you have to prepare. But I never thought, I thought there'll be water in the street. Um, I never thought we'd see water like this off island. So you have to prepare. You have to take every storm seriously. You have to act as if it could turn. And that's why we had to close the refuge and get ready. And people are wondering, oh, it's too early. No, there's so much that has to be prepared um, for public lands. Definitely keep people safe off of public lands, but then your own home too. So it's it's life changing um, when you go through something like that. And then seeing people we love on the islands with loss is, is tough. And obviously, uh, you, you lost power uh, for for a period of time. You have power back, I'm guessing. Yeah, power back. I think it was seven days. Seven days um, without power. Had- okay. What? Real quick, in a minute or two, I've I've experienced similar. Tell tell our listeners what it's like to have seven days without electricity. Not just air conditioning, no air conditioning and, and not a fan. In South Florida. Yeah, not even ice. You know, I mean, now it's the thing that I kept reminding, oh, I'll just, say, I'll just get a cool drink. No, I had no ice. So seven days of electricity. In, 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 how did you and your kids deal with that? Right. So I was just thankful it wasn't August. <laughs> okay. It was a little bit cooler in right. September. And, you know, it was a little bit cooler, but... Another thing you're like, oh, I'll just jump in my swimming pool to maybe, no, the swimming pool was as dark as coffee. I'd never seen water come over a swimming pool. It's actually, you know, know, it's real quick, as an environmental engineer, it's actually very hazardous to be outdoors in that setting because that's not just the, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. That's uh, wastewater, that's stormwater, that's pool, that's gasoline, you know, gas tank, gasoline from, and diesel fuel from flooded cars. It is a toxic broth of, yes. of water, flood water that's in and around you and, and you know, gets into people's homes. And, and the level of damage that occurs is uh, not just, again, that classic physical element, roofs blown off, walls knocked out. No, now you have to deal with water intrusion, chemical intrusion, right. mold and mildew that comes along with that. There is a yep. host of challenges that people in Southwest Florida face over these coming months it's, right it's going to be Even, months you know, taking your taking your dog out for a walk right now onto the grass mm. your question your you know all of that but even after we had water in the street um the water was up for at least 12 hours that high mm. i remember opening the door with my friend melissa who was staying here we were just making sure the water was going down it's pitch dark you have no power the water has come nine feet. You're wondering if it's still coming. Mm. We opened the front door and she screamed and she slammed the front door. And I was like, there was a rabbit on my porch in the water and I wanted to grab it and it jumped off. You know what I mean? That you're just like, oh my gosh, but you're right. There's wildlife hazards, right. you know, where, you know, you just like, never know. And telling people the next morning and people have to be careful. They're out waiting in the water with their boots and stuff. And you're just like, 
is it really necessary right this moment, right. you know? Right. As for Fish and Wildlife Service, they do check on their employees and, and all of a sudden um, law enforcement showed up with Fish and Wildlife Service, just as the plan says, if you don't respond, they show up. Um, so that had happened too, which was the first time for me. Um, so yeah, just all new things. Just when yeah. you think you've been through a couple hurricanes, it, it changes. And Well, I hate to say, but that seems to be the nature of things going forward in a warmer mm -hmm. and in, in Florida's case, a well, wetter world. Here it's a warmer and drier world out, out west. But you're going to be probably seeing more storms like this that intensify rapidly um, yeah. and challenge the modelers uh, and, and, and the weather uh, forecasters like this storm did. Um, right. We, we got to wrap up, uh, Tony, a website perhaps for people to go to to learn, learn more about uh, Jay and Ding Darling Refuge and maybe, you know, uh, track what's going on there in its recovery. Yeah, the easiest thing is um, our Facebook page. So the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. Our Facebook page has what's happening right now. Recovery, cleanup, partners, wildlife. People are sharing, I posted this morning, share your best ding picture. And within a few hours, there's 325 pictures of people sharing their memories of becoming engaged or you know all those types of memories. Um, so that's the easiest way to see us real time, um, what's happening out here. We do have a website, FWS forward slash ding darling. But we also have an awesome friends group, um, the supporters. They're a nonprofit that supports the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. Um, the Ding Darling Wildlife Society. So those are kind of the places people can go to. A quick search ding will get you to us um, and see some real time what's happening down here. All right, Tony Weslin, Supervisory Refuge Ranger at the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge down on Sanibel Island. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you. And joining us now for the second part of the show live, we'll speak with Julie Raithmel, the Executive Director of Audubon, Florida. Julie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we know it's been, um, I can imagine, an, an adventurous, a busy few weeks for you. Um, before we dive into um, the hurricane impacts, let's talk just briefly about Audubon, Florida. Give us a profile of um, your chapter. Sure. So Audubon, Florida is the state office of National Audubon Society in Florida. Uh, we are 122 years old in Florida this year. We're the state's oldest statewide conservation organization. We focus on water, wildlife, habitat, and climate with our staff of uh, resource managers, researchers, educators, and policy wonks. So um, <laughs> all kinds of good work related to Florida's environment. Perfect. Well, um, I'm sure that there's lots of kind of assessing going on right now, and we're curious to hear what kinds of impacts um, Hurricane Ian and, and hurricanes in general have on the birds. You know, we, we um, know how destructive these storms can be, um, but we also know that birds evolved with these storms. So what happens? Where, where do the birds go or what do they do? How do they react to this kind of weather? Well, you, you really put your finger on it because Florida's environment, our landscape, our habitats, our 
adapted to this kind of occasional disturbance. Um, you know, Florida has been shaped by hurricanes for thousands of years. And so um, the species that occur here are accustomed to it. In fact, some of them welcome it. Uh, for a lot of our coastal birds, um, they prefer habitats that have that are early successional. It means that they have not really grown up with plants yet. They they thrive on areas that have been overwashed and eroded and accreted. So so yes, there are always some benefits. But the challenge, of course, is that humans um, humans prefer stability over dynamism. And so the coastal environment is a really dynamic place, and humans do everything that we can to stabilize it as much as we can and it's when events like hurricanes that come along um, that those two kind of ways of being come into conflict mm. um, so you know like you said birds have wings and so many of them do move ahead of the hurricane in the hurricane themselves um, we see we see birds um, we get reports of birds sheltering in interesting places, things like burrowing owls perched under the eaves of houses or on people's front porches. Um, frequently in hurricanes, you can see birds trapped within the eye of the hurricane mm. on uh, satellite imagery and on radar. Wow. And, um, and sometimes hurricanes will actually carry birds from one part of the Caribbean to the mainland. So um, it, it can be a really kind of disruptive experience, not just for people, but also for wildlife. And do you see, uh, I guess, significant population impacts, impacts um, to these bird species after one of these storms? It really depends on the storm and the geography that was affected, as well as the species of birds. So um, some birds will do better as a result of it. So some of those beach nesting shorebird and seabird mm -hmm. species that I mentioned who will look at some of that overwash as a benefit. Um, then there's other species that you can see, especially if they're already imperiled and they're not very resilient, that will struggle. Several years ago, there were problems with a, a hurricane that came through and an endangered kind of woodpecker, a red cockaded woodpecker, had tremendous impacts because the trees snapped in the winds right at the level of the cavities that the birds nest mm. in. And so individuals were killed as a you know, in the course of that destruction. So it, it really varies species by species. Um, the trick is making sure that our communities and our landscape and their populations are as resilient as they can be so that they can accommodate these kinds of events when they happen. Uh, in the first part of the show, we spoke with the uh, refuge manager for John uh, J.N. Ding Darling National Wildlife, right. and she spoke about the damage that was uh, occurred there. And she mentioned uh, at least one species, sharks, have a kind of an anticipatory nature to the storm in its way that they kind of sense the, the sudden drop in barometric pressure and headed to deep water. Are there birds that ha also have that sense of uh, uh, feeling a, a sudden drop in pressure and thinking, I got to go or I, something's, something's wrong here? Absolutely. They're way more perceptive than we are. And in fact, you know, birds migrate based on cues that are everything from 
um, you know, the stars to changing pressure to, you know, they can even sense the, the you know, low, um, low frequency sound of wind rushing across distant mountain ranges and wow. you know, waves crashing on shores. And so right. I can't even imagine what a hurricane approaching sounds to something that's mm. that perceptive. Now, now that said, sometimes they can use it to their advantage too. I mean, there have been satellite tagged shorebirds that have been um, shown using, uh, you know, they encounter a hurricane and then they actually use the direction of the prevailing winds to kind of slingshot around the storm and use that tailwind as a as a boost on their long overwater migration. So, you know, are there individuals that certainly fare poorly in a hurricane? Absolutely. Are there some that are able to take advantage of some of the opportunity? That too. But it's so fascinating. And, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking we may have skipped an important piece of this conversation to set the scene. Tell us about the bird life in Florida. We know you're known for these amazing shorebirds and the diversity of birds. Um, give us a picture of the, the community of birds there. Absolutely. You're, you're right. We are... Um we are spoiled with an abundance of bird life. And unlike a lot of the rest of the country, we actually have more birds in the winter than we do in the summer. So mm. when folks up north are scrounging for an occasional cardinal in the winter, <laughs> um, we, are, we are spoiled for choice. We're also really important because um, so much of North America's um, migratory birds actually move through Florida like a funnel. You can imagine it's just like a drain where the birds cling to land as long as they can before having to make those long overwater flights to Latin America. And so um, we, we get uh, snowbirds and visitors of the feathered persuasion in addition to people. Um, so a lot of people think of us as, you know, the Everglades and wading birds and uh, spoonbills and all of kind of the the charismatic iconic species but the diversity of um, ducks and raptors and songbirds and the like um, is is equally rich if you're just joining us we are speaking with Julie Raithmel she's the executive director of Audubon Florida and we're talking um, about the impacts of Hurricane Ian and all things birds I guess um, in Florida um, you know, back to kind of the, the population trends and the birds that you have there. Um, I know that birds were heavily impacted many years ago um, because they were sought out for their feathers to be used for hats and clothes and things like that. Um, are there species that have recovered from that um, and have larger populations now? Very much so. So that's actually the... Uh the origin story for for Audubon. So, you know, it was citizens coming together and watching the slaughter of wading birds in the Everglades for the plume mm. trade, you know, for the use of their feathers in fashion. And uh, folks saying, this has got to change or else we're gonna lose these birds completely. And they came together to pass some of the first uh, bird protection laws in the country and eventually the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is really the cornerstone for a lot of conservation in, in our country today. 
Um, so species like reddish egrets and roseate spoonbills that were hunted nearly to extinguish, I mean, to extinction, um, have definitely rebounded. Today, they they face different challenges. You know, they're not staring down the barrel of a poacher's gun, but they are staring down sea level rise. They're staring down habitat loss. Uh, remember that our population has has grown extraordinarily. You know, since I was I was in kindergarten in Central Florida in 1980, there were 10 million people. In the ensuing 40 odd years since, uh, we've doubled that. We're at 22 wow. million today. Uh, in that same period of time, um, our tourist visitation grew sixfold. We now see 122 million tourists to Florida every year. That's a lot of people, which takes a lot of space, which has impacts to habitat. And so now the name of the game for conservation really is making sure that these species have the places that they depend on both today and into the future. That was one of the uh, points you touched on right at the beginning. Habitat is one of the pieces that um Audubon is is working on how do you how do you address that um it's a little bit of everything I mean of course traditional acquisition and protection is important so creating the parks and preserves that these species depend upon but then also making sure that those places are being managed compatibly for those species you know for a lot of the beach nesting birds that I mentioned they lay their eggs directly on the sand and the parents instead of keeping them warm are shading them from the mm -hmm. elements and when people recreational beachgoers flush them inadvertently. Um, those eggs cook in the sun in a matter of minutes or can be broken when they're stepped upon or other things. And so making sure that there are protections in place so that recreation and species can coexist is, is a big part of that. Some of it also is kind of clawing back some of the ecosystem functions that we've lost. You know, historically, if you had flown across uh, central Florida, it would have looked like a constellation of stars for all of the wetlands reflecting sunlight back at you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Florida is a very flat place, which is probably um, probably confusing for folks that are used to thinking of elevation in, in terms of thousands of feet. Um, but, you know, a lot of these coastal areas that, that were impacted by the storm are nine feet above sea level, 20 feet above sea level. And so in many places, a, a change of just a few inches of elevation has radical impacts to what habitat occurs in that place. And as Florida was ditched and drained to try to make um, make much of it more compatible for development, we lost a lot of those wetlands which protect us from storm flooding they clean water for us and slow it on its way to the coast and they protect us from catastrophic wildfire in um, in times of drought so really recovering some of those wetlands and um, working with private landowners as well to kind of rehydrate some of those historic wetlands and regain some of those functions. It's it's good for wildlife and it's really important to um, human quality of life too. So the, the storm we had mentioned earlier cut a path that extended from southwest Florida, Fort Myers, Naples, most of the images we see there, most of the damage was done there in that area. And then up through central Florida, um, the Kissimmee River Basin, and then into the northeast part, Florida, the St. John's River Basin. So all of those really critical 
uh, ecosystems and habitats were were hit in one form or another, upland species as well as coastal and wetland species. There wasn't there wasn't an area of Florida in, in that that wasn't impacted. Um, what's your early assessment as far as you know who took the biggest? What areas took the biggest hit? Ecosystem wise, you know, it's. I mean, it's it's a hard thing to. It's not the kind of competition that anyone really wants no, to win, is it? You know, so so I, I guess they all I will lost say, in some way. You know, right? yeah. yeah, Southwest Florida on the coast absolutely saw catastrophic storm surge and wind damage. You know what you're talking about inland. Um, you know, in the kind of flat prairie center of the peninsula up to Orlando, a lot of the flooding that you saw there was rainfall driven. You know, mm. this was a tremendously large and slow moving storm, which gave it plenty of time to just dump buckets and buckets of water on the landscape. And without enough of those historic wetlands still intact to absorb, you know, those waters, Flooding is the result, um, and it's just it's been really hard, especially for the folks of the Orlando area who are still, hmm. you know, seeing seeing those waters slow to subside. In Northeast Florida, you know, again there was lots of storm surge as well as you know wind driven waves, and we saw that even up into Jacksonville. Even though you know the storm stayed well offshore over there, the the trick is is this storm came through at a time of um, seasonally high tides, uh, you know, for, for your landlocked listeners, the tide isn't the same height all year long, but depending upon uh, moon phases and, and other elements, sometimes of the year it's higher than others. And this was just kind of the perfect storm where the mm-hmm. high tides were as high as they get. And, you know, we're already at a place of sea level rise where we're seeing, you know, blue sky flooding in some of our communities. Um, when we get these high tides because the ocean is higher than it used to be. So um, so yeah, there are there are houses on pilings that are that are now in the ocean. And um, you know, there are seawalls that have been breached on on the east coast. It's not just, you know, southwest Florida which which bore the brunt of its first landfall, but um, didn't didn't get all of the damage. Well, switching gears a little bit um, from from the hurricane that you just encountered to looking ahead, what are the big uh, projects or priorities on Audubon Florida's list? Absolutely. Well, I, I think it all comes down to resilience. And so it's building that resilience back into the system. Um, we know that this is not the last time we're going to face a storm of this magnitude. And in fact, with climate change, it's only likely to increase. So how can we make sure that we weather these storms better in the future? Part of that has to do with land use decisions and making sure that we are rebuilding in appropriate places and in appropriate ways. But some of it also means reclaiming some of those ecosystem functions that I mentioned, you know, going back and reinvesting in wetland restoration so that the next time we see extraordinary rainfall amounts like this, there's somewhere for that water to go. Um, You know, we can't keep uh, making land use decisions like we did in 20th century Florida in 21st century Florida. And so, 
you know, seawalls and some of that other hard infrastructure, that's that's old technology. We really need to be looking towards the future and working with the environment, you know, working with marshes and restoring mangroves and uh, dunes and some of those other natural landforms that help us to protect the built environment, but also um, benefit the, the natural environment too. You know, I um, work in sort of an equivalent of field of um, conservation and restoration here in Utah. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about it using the same concepts that we're shifting to, albeit in a very, very different environment, Um, working with the environment and using the systems that kind of already are in place. Um, But one, one last question, and we have a couple of minutes, and that's, you know, for those of us who are far away from Florida, living here in landlocked Utah, um, how can we support Audubon Florida or the birds of Florida um, from afar or when we visit? You know, it's a popular destination. Um, and how can people be a responsible and supportive visitor to the state of Florida? Absolutely. So um, I've had a lot of folks asking about, you know, when will Southwest Florida be ready to welcome visitors back again? And I know that they are they are eager. And of course, with such a strong tourist based economy, they're going to be working to make that possible as soon as they possibly can. Um, That said, having folks you know, thinking about their footprint when they are visiting our state and being sure that they are respecting park rules and beach rules. And um, those rules aren't just there to to harsh your vacation. They're there (laughs) um, because they're protecting a natural resource. And unfortunately, some of these resources can be loved to death. And so we all kind of have to do our part. Patronize places that are making good choices, that are gardening with native plants, that aren't necessarily fertilizing, that aren't um, using huge expanses of lawn. All of those things contribute to water quality issues. And then the last thing I'd just say is that Florida's birds aren't just Florida's birds. They are North America's birds. You know, they have wings. And so they move between our state and yours and points in between. So in order to conserve birds, we have to protect them across their entire life cycle. That's a hallmark of Audubon's work. And so be mindful of what you do in your everyday life in Utah is is helping our birds because our birds are your birds. It's a team effort. Well, I love that. And that's that's the perfect note to wrap up on. Unfortunately, we have to uh, wrap up this interview. But Julie, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this Green Earth. Thank you for covering this and inviting me. That was Julie Raithmel, the executive director of Audubon, Florida. You can email us your thoughts, your comments, and your ideas for future shows at thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. We always want to cover what you want to hear, so please get in touch. And the interviews for today's show will be posted on the KPCW website. That's right. We're We're out there. All right. (laughs) Can't miss us, right? That's right. Thanks again for joining us.